Welcome to the Capitol Beach. My name is Derek Brockbank. I'm your host for the Capitol Beach and I'm the executive director of American Shore and Beach Preservation Association. I'm very excited today to be joined by my second guest from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Erica Feller is the Director of Marine and Coastal Conservation for National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, NIFWIF. Uh, last summer, I had the opportunity to interview Tom Kelsch with the Gulf Environmental Benefits Fund at NIFWIF, which is a, a massive funding pot coming out of the BP oil spill. But Erica runs the Coastal Resilience Program, and so we'll be talking to her about the terrific work that NIFWIF does on coastal resilience. Uh, should be a really fun podcast. It's a chance to talk to someone who works in what I guess essentially is an NGO or a foundation, not a federal agency, but does some really tremendous um, policy and grant making, or I guess grant making and and helps implement projects on coastal resilience. So very exciting episode today. uh, But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the thedunesciencegroup.com. Okay, uh, thank you to all of our sponsors. We couldn't do this without you. Um, very excited to talk to uh, Erica. Thank you so much for joining us today, Erica. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So again, I mentioned in the intro that uh, this is you're my second uh, guest with NIFWIF, um, but for those who don't listen all the time, and I don't understand why, uh, you should always listen to the Capitol Beach. But if you don't, uh, could you give us quite maybe a quick overview of, of NIFWIF? What is the organization, what you guys do? Sure. Um, Well, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation was established by Congress in 1984, and we are a private 501c3 foundation um, that partners with federal agencies. And our whole role is to kind of be the the partner, the conduit for helping to facilitate federal funds getting on the ground to do projects. And what they really wanted us to do was to take that federal money and leverage it with investments from the private sector. And so you know, help make things go more smoothly and also kind of leverage the sort of impact that federal funds could have. And in 1994, that mandate was expanded to also include NOAA. And so both the NOAA administrator and the director of the Fish and Wildlife Service serve on our board. Cool. So a classic example of a a non-governmental program that was established through the government um, and continues to have government ties given given sort of who the board members are. Um, It's a 
for those that don't know NIFWIF, definitely check it out. It's a, a really good foundation. They, they give out a lot of money on a lot of different things. So we've talked about golf. We're talking about coastal resilience today. But um, many species in our country, I think, are probably uh, still around today because of the work of NIFWIF. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about you, Erica. What's uh, what's your background? I Sending me your bio, it looks like you've got both. Similarly, you've got background both in government and in and not in government. So let's what's how did you get to NIFWIF? Oh, how did I get to NIFWIP? I have a background largely in working with government. Um, I've worked in the policy world. I worked on Capitol Hill for a few years. I worked for the administration for a few years. And, you know, I've kind of found I, I love working on policy. I love working on the big ideas. But I have found that the thing that really inspires me is people in communities on the ground who are getting stuff done. And where I've always kind of found myself happiest is, you know, trying to find ways that I can bring my skills, my experience with government to trying to help empower those people in communities. And so the programs that my team runs largely work, you know, we're largely focused on marine wildlife and habitat conservation, but we focus on sustainable fishing and protecting, you know, like whales and sea turtles and conserving coastal and marine habitat. And I really like that kind of direct connection with people who are trying to do good in their communities. NIFWIF is a great place to be able to do that. Yeah, terrific. And I'm, I'm sorry to sorry to do this to you. Hopefully it's not embarrassing to you, but you sent me your bio and you've got some of my my favorite organizations on there. So I want to do a couple shout outs. You were a, a Knaus uh, fellow, uh, which is a great program if you don't know the Knaus Fellowship um, and you're looking to break into coastal policy work, definitely check that out. Um, Absolutely. Where were you where were you doing your Knaus uh, fellowship with or who were you working with when you were there? Uh, I, I was a secret fellow out of uh, University of Alaska, and I worked on the House side um, for a congressman. He's not in office anymore, a guy named Wayne Gilcrest, who, interestingly enough, was a really big champion of coastal habitat restoration and sustainable fisheries. Yeah. So clearly uh, that had a big impact on me. Yeah, this this is, I guess, dating both of us a, a little bit because he's been out of office for, gosh, probably over 10 years now. But uh, Eastern Shore of Maryland um, really if I recall correctly, conservation-minded Republican, um, actually was the lead author of of one of the climate bills back in the early 2000s. Um, so sort of in that John McCain type of, you know, caring about the conservation, caring about climate. And then uh, you've also worked for uh, the Nature Conservancy. We've interviewed Nature Conservancy folks on, on the podcast. So um, uh, really a lot of good organizations in your background, White House Council and CEQ. Um, so excited to have you here today. Um, so we're going to uh, get into a lot of different stuff today, hopefully, but I really want, you run the National Coastal Resilience Fund, um, NCRF. Can you sort of at a high level tell us what is the National Coastal Resilience Fund and then what you do for that program? So the National Coastal Resilience Fund, um, is a it's a grant program. It's it's an annual funding opportunity, as NIFWIF likes to call things, uh, that's existed since 2018. And the program is set up to fund projects, to fund resilience projects. And what we're looking to do is to support projects that restore habitat, that restore natural and nature-based features, to use the jargon, um, like salt marshes, mangroves, dunes, floodplains, coral reefs, and and the like that can, you know, in addition to providing benefits for wildlife and birds and fish and all that kind of stuff, can also provide enhanced protection to communities and buffer them against sea level rise, changing flood patterns, um, storms, that sort of thing. You know, so the bullseye for NCRF is 
where you have that habitat benefit and that benefit for people. And we're looking to set, and this will come up again and again, I'm sorry if it gets old, but we're looking to support a pipeline of projects. So we wanna focus on trying to get these things built. Um, so we'll fund the design and engineering and all the way through to actually getting a project constructed. And so it's kind of designed to help communities take the ideas, identify what their needs are to address resilience, and then give them the means to implement those. And then your role in in doing this, do you are you sort of the person who helps decide who gets the grants? Do you work with the communities? What's your what's your role? Sure. So uh, the NCRF is a partnership between NIFWF and NOAA, and so my role personally is you know from. From where we sit, running the overall program, we manage, you know, we work really closely with NOAA on this, but we also kind of have, um, you know, we write the request for proposals and, you know, work with grantees to, you know, help them understand what we're actually looking for, kind of give them feedback and advice on their projects um, and, you know, submit those projects, then also play a role in reviewing all of those and trying to decide which ones make the most sense to fund. Unfortunately, we have a lot more demand for this program than we have money uh, to support projects. So it's kind of this really challenging thing where, you know, you want to invite projects forward that are likely to get funded. That's not necessarily all the projects that you really would want to fund all other things being equal. Uh, so we try and find the projects that are the best fit for what the National Coastal Resilience Fund is trying to do. And we've got a, you know, we've got a phase in here where we kind of ask people in advance what their ideas are. So it's kind of a pre-proposal and we use that to narrow down and then we'll invite the projects we think are the best fit to submit a full proposal uh, back to the program. So those people who are likely to be competitive. So, you know, we review those and, you know, invite people to give us uh, feedback on those proposals and help us decide which ones have merit. And then we, you know, work with NOAA to pull a grant slate together and um, and move it forward. So you mentioned uh, money and the scope of the program. Can you give us a little sense what, how much money do you give out annually? Uh, approximately how many projects do you fund annually? What's sort of the size of the program? So... Uh, it's grown a little bit. The first two years, the program was about $30 million that we had available. Um, we had, you know, this program is funded uh, through an appropriation from Congress directed to the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And we've worked with some private partners to also raise private funds um, to help augment that. Uh, so, you know, altogether, it comes around to around $30 million in 2020, the grant cycle that we're currently in, uh, the funding opportunity is $33 million. Uh, Congress increased the appropriation and asked us to please include uh, more of a focus on resilience planning, uh, you know, to help communities figure out like what their resilience needs are and identify where they need to work to meet those needs. So that additional funding allowed us to enable that to do that project phase. So the last couple of years, the grant slate has been in the neighborhood of about 40 to 45 projects. Um, kind of depends on what you're doing, how big those projects are. But one of the things we really look for is, um, is scale and, and the kind of impact the project's going to have. So it's not that we want to try and go out and find all of the cheapest projects that we can do. We want to figure out how to fund the projects that are going to have the biggest impacts and leave communities in the best position to, you know, 
figure out how to restore stuff to meet their resilience needs. And so sometimes, you know, we're, we're kind of constantly asking grantees to sort of think a little bit bigger in terms of what they want to do. We don't necessarily want to fund a pilot project. We want to fund a project that's at a big enough scale to really have some kind of impact. And when you talk about coastal, are you, does that, what we, ASBPA often thinks about coastal as East Coast, Gulf Coast, West Coast, and Great Lakes. Is that similar to you? Or are you just looking at saltwater coasts? And then sort of how far, how far inland do you go? Do you sort of follow that NOAA coastal zone, uh, coastal zone, or is it elsewhere in the coast? East Coast, West Coast, Gulf, Great Lakes, Alaska, and then all of the territories are eligible for funding. Um, and the way we've defined the footprint for the program is um, the two coastal, um, what is it, the eight-digit hydrologic cataloging unit. There's a map on our website if people want to look <laughs> to figure out where it is. But it really, it's not defined as the same as the coastal zone under the coastal zone management. That tends to be a little bit broader in states have defined that in different areas. Um, we've defined a specific geography that's really kind of that coastal tidally influenced area that's um, eligible for these grants. So in some places, it may be really narrow, like where you have like a coastal mountain range. In some places where you have a big floodplain that goes up inland, you know, there may be a bigger area that's eligible for funding. Sure. So if I can, if I can recap and maybe correct me if I miss anything here, um, Coastal Resilience Fund gets in the around third, has had around $30 million a year. Maybe it's a little bit more this year. Um, You're funding about 40 projects. So you're not looking at, you know, $10 million projects, but you're also looking for, you also mentioned you're trying to get projects that are really going to have, um, significant impacts and are, are, are bigger than, uh, you're not just looking for little postage stamp projects. Uh, and then I thought the other thing that I heard, which is really good is, is taking this, taking the pipeline of the project. So starting from planning and then moving through, you know, engineering design development to actual full construction. So really seeing projects through from, from beginning to end. Um, is that sort of a quick, yeah, go ahead. I want to talk about that pipeline for a second, because I think it, it matters for, for one thing you just pointed out. So our pipeline is, we've kind of got four buckets that we divide projects into. Um, the first one is this uh, coastal or community capacity building and planning. And those are probably, I mean, you know, planning work is, it's not your biggest ticket item. So we kind of expect those grants to be somewore in the neighborhood of you know, maybe 125 dollars to $150,000. But when I say impact, what we say to folks is, you know, we want you to think about this planning broadly. Like at the other end of it, if you can come out and have ideas that will, you know, tee you up to put in a proposal to the National Coastal Resilience Fund, great. That's fantastic. Very pleased to see that. If you can come out with a plan that's also going to make you ready to go talk to FEMA or housing and urban development, or economic development administration, or anybody else who's kind of thinking about resilience in their grant making, that's fantastic. We would love to see that. And if you need a bigger grant to be able to do that, we're all ears. The second phase um, is the site assessment and preliminary design. And this is where, you know, people kind of doing that preliminary planning that gets you to making a go or no-go project on a go or no go decision on a particular project. And again, those grants, you know, for the most part, they're maybe about $150,000, $175,000. We had one in um, 2019 that was $600,000. 
So it depends on what you're doing and what that scale of impact is. Does it justify the amount of funding? Great. Um, and then we have design and engineering, and this is getting projects to shovel ready. And these start to get a little bit bigger. It's doing much more kind of, you know, all of the things that you need to do to get ready to get a project permitted and ready to implement. And those kind of come in largely in the neighborhood of two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars, but they can be bigger depending on what it is you're planning to do. And then our last category is restoration and monitoring. And those projects have been everywhere from, you know, I think we've probably had some that were in the neighborhood of about half a million dollars all the way up to three, four, five million dollars. Um, I know that we've gotten some pre-proposals for 2020 that are in the neighborhood, you know, probably up around $5 million. And that's exactly what we want. So to your point, like we could fund a project that's $10 million. It would most likely be in that last category, but that 30 million distributed across 40 projects includes all of those. And so there are some buckets that are just smaller projects. There's more of them, but they're smaller, but we also want to be able to fund these, these, these big ticket projects as well. I originally thought we might dig into some of this project, uh, specifics later but since we're going there maybe we can talk about one or two projects that you guys have funded over the past year or two just to give an example of this um, before we were started to record you mentioned both project in puerto rico and a, a project in louisiana that have seen i guess multiple years probably for multiple s steps do you want to talk about one or either of those um sure i think you know just in terms of what I was just describing about the pipeline, one of the best examples of how that works is a project that we funded in Jefferson Parish in Louisiana. So this is, um, these guys are planning to restore uh, about 70, 80 acres of marsh and tidal creeks and lagoons. Uh, it's going to have water quality benefits. It's going to include a living shoreline feature and, you know, stabilize the shoreline there. So in 2018, we funded their design and engineering work. So they were a couple beats short of being shovel ready. So they got a grant in 2018, they finished that work. And then they came back in 2019 and said, we're ready to go to construction. And we said, great. So that was about a two, I think that was about a $2.6 million grant in 2019, that they're just get they're going to get started on this summer to start construction of that project. Cool. And since we you brought up Louisiana and, and I mentioned we've talked to the Gulf Environment Benefits Fund on this program, they obviously have you know a tremendous amount of money, um, but there are a lot of strings attached to it because of the legal sediment following the BP oil spill. How do you, I guess this is sort of a two-part question, how do you interact with the Gulf Environment Benefits team at NIFWIF uh, to make sure that you are sort of, I guess, leveraging the right amount of money, making sure that what you're spending money on in this program is not what... Um, you know, is not something that they could be spending money on. And then how do you interact with the state or Jefferson Parish to, to help them figure out sort of which, which pot of money to ask for from NIFWIF? So one of the nice things about NIFWIF is that um, we're pretty small and lean um, and we all talk to each other. And one of the things about how we implement this project, because, you know, I look at this from a national perspective, National Coastal Resilience Fund is... Um, available to the entire coastline of the United States. But every part of the country is pretty different in terms of how they're dealing with these issues. And, you know, the great thing about the GEBF team that Tom leads is those guys are working with the states in the Gulf of Mexico every day. They're talking to them all the time. They know a lot about what's going on on the ground. They know what they can fund and they have a pretty good idea of what a lot of other people are doing in these places. So we definitely rely on them really heavily for helping us kind of think about where we want to go 
in the Gulf? Like what kinds of things need to happen? What are better suited to NCRF? What are better suited to GEBF? And there are some projects that we've been able to co-fund between the Coastal Resilience Fund and GEBF. To be kind of blunt about it, they have, because they're so uh, on the ground and they have so much money, you're able to work with them to make those connections in state and at the county level. Um, But then you can cross coordinate to make sure that you're sort of building upon each other's work as opposed to conflicting with each other. Is that sort of a fair way to, to state it? I think that's exactly a good way to say it. So if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a bit more about the Puerto Rico example too. Obviously the Gulf, as, as many of our listeners know, as many people uh, on the coast know, is one of the most vulnerable places in the country and certainly a, a poster child for where you know rebuilding, uh, creating resilience can also create uh, wildlife benefits. You rebuild a marsh, you rebuild living shorelines, you're helping the birds that live in the, the Gulf Coast, you're also protecting uh, some of the urban centers along the Gulf Coast. But let's hear about Puerto Rico, a place that would not have been eligible for funding um, from the Gulf, from the BP oil spill. Um, oh, I'm so glad you want to talk about this project because I really like this project. Um, there, this is a project that's being led by the University of Puerto Rico at Aguadilla. And they are focused on dunes. So there's a dune system that historically extended along the North shore of Puerto Rico. And one of the things that happened when Hurricanes Maria and Irma hit in 2017 is a lot of the dunes got washed away. One of the reasons a lot of these dunes got washed away is you have a lot of foot traffic across the dunes. These beaches are really heavily used. And so you lose a lot of vegetation It left the dunes vulnerable. And you can see the impacts. I mean, even with a, a pretty good swell coming on the North shore, it still washes a lot of sand over the dunes, covering the roads, and it had a huge impact during the hurricane. So what these guys are looking to do is go in and restore the dunes using kind of, you know, features, pallets to trap sand and kind of allow the dunes to rebuild naturally. And then they're going in and replanting the dunes with, um, you know, cocoloba native um, stabilizing vegetation. And then the last component of the project, almost, is they're building boardwalks uh, to create access points onto the beach so they can preserve the vegetated area, keep the dunes stable, but also still give the public a way to get onto the beaches safely. And one of the things I really like about this project is it incorporates a lot of volunteer labor. So they keep the community really engaged in understanding why the dunes are important, what kinds of things the dunes do for them. And giving people kind of an avenue to get involved with, you know, providing volunteer service during the, um, you know, the replanting efforts or building the boardwalks. And, you know, it particularly focuses a lot on young people in Puerto Rico who kind of, you know, then reach out and go talk to their families about why this kind of work is really important. So there's a lot about this project, I think, that is really great. And it's it gets attention like, you know, the great the our grantee in this case has told us, you know, he's had leaders from other communities come and ask him about the dune restoration that they're that they're doing and say, well, how can we do this for our community? Which I think is exactly the kind of impact we want to see. That's terrific. And, and glad to hear that there is the uh, boardwalk or walkover component. I mean, something that we at ASBPA talk a lot about and have a lot of our members talk about is, is creating those access points and creating the walkovers. And even though you might not think of a walkover for a dune or a boardwalk, being something that enhances the resilience or on its own enhances habitat, um, 
it's what facilitates the a, a dune surviving, right? If you don't have a walkover point, then people will walk through the dune to get to the beach. And so I think that's really forward thinking of you guys and, and making sure that you're looking at the the full sort of social uh, parameters of how you maintain uh, resilience and, and maintain healthy habitat, not just the sort of immediate physical or biological features. Um, although, and this actually prompted another question, which I think I had further down on my list, but um, you mentioned this was sort of post uh, hurricane Maria, which really decimated the island. Um, and they're slowly recovering from, uh, if, if I recall correctly, there was additional funding to NIFWIF following the disasters. I don't know if it was the Harvey Irma Maria year, maybe it was, it was last year, but there was additional funding in the appropriations, uh, the supplemental appropriations for emergency coastal resilience. Is that something you could tell us a little about? Is that part of this program? Is it sort of a separate program? How does that, how does that interplay with the National Coastal Resilience Fund? So the Emergency Coastal Resilience Fund, it's separate from the National Coastal Resilience Fund. Okay. Um, and it was, the funds came to NIFWF specifically to address um, impacts associated with Hurricanes Michael and Florence, um, which mainly impacted the Southeast and the Eastern Gulf Coast. And then also Typhoon U2, which impacted the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands and then also to address impacts associated with wildfires in coastal areas. And that in for that, it was a, you know, a one-time um, appropriation for funding specifically to address resilience needs identified in the wake of those storms. And we were really looking for shovel-ready projects. But, I mean, I'm, you know as well as I do, sometimes identifying shovel-ready projects is hard because you may have a project and it has a couple of steps before it's really shovel ready. And so, you know, under ECRF, we were able to fund things that were probably, probably had a foot in a couple of the buckets that I described for coastal national coastal resilience fund. So where I would want somebody to pick one of those priority areas under the emergency coastal resilience fund, they, they funded projects that were a little bit more comprehensive. So completing designs for a particular project and then funding also the implementation. Okay. So even though they both have coastal resilience in their name, they are essentially from your funding perspective, two separate programs. One was more focused on, I guess you could say the end of the pipeline, that construction phase. Although you're also looking at some of the, some of the preliminary pieces to that or to design and engineering and really specifically to address uh, uh, resilience in the areas impacted by those those disasters you mentioned, Hurricanes Florence and Michael, Typhoon U2, and, and then the wildfires. Yeah. It, I mean, we got different types of projects. Like I can tell you, you know, we worked a lot with like the, the Marianas on the Typhoon U2 work. And in that area, they were really focused on, you know, we, we see the need for these resilience projects. So let's do some let's do some planning and design and kind of pilot scale work to sort of figure out how this is going to work here. And they have a much more early um, plan. They're very, very early in their stages for their planning for resilience. But then other parts of the country, like in Florida, you know, there there were much more immediate, bigger scale needs. And so that's kind of the things we're able to fund. So you sort of have to be willing to meet the communities where they are. Okay, well, let's let's maybe pivot from we've been talking a lot about the actual projects, what gets funded, how it gets funded. Uh, I figure if our listeners are still listening, they find this interesting. And one thing that I find interesting about this program is sort of its evolution. And this is getting into politics and sort of where it came from. Um, 
So you mentioned that the, the National Coastal Resilience Fund, and that's not the Emergency Coastal Resilience Fund that's funded by the supplemental, but the National Coastal Resilience Fund is funded through um, sell, or sorry, it's funded through the appropriations process, so that annual budgeting process, which means, you know, it may be consistent, but one year you might get thirty million, one year you might get zero. Uh, there's no real way of, of knowing. Um, so let's start talking a bit about how that uh, got created, and if I recall correctly. Um, this was something I was working on a few years ago. This actually, in, there was an initial program called Coastal Resilience Grants at NOAA. And so this was just a NOAA program that offered up resilience grants. I think it was in the sort of 10 to $15 million range. Uh, and then when did you say this was? 2017, 2018, uh, the Coastal Resilience Program at NOAA sort of shifted into this Coastal Resilience, National Coastal Resilient uh, Fund at NIFWIF with, in collaboration with NOAA. Um, I guess, first off, is that, am I recalling all this correctly? And uh, any sort of insights you can provide into how that shift occurred? Maybe some of the benefits that you see from moving it from a NOAA grant to a, a NIFWIF grant? Um, and then to just add one more layer to this question, uh, how do you see this moving forward? Are there opportunities for increasing the funding potential from uh, new sources of funding beyond just appropriations? So uh, a lot of pieces there. So maybe start with sort of the origin of, of the Coastal Resilience Fund. Yeah, so the important thing to touch on very first is that NIFWIF doesn't do advocacy. We don't get involved in kind of advocating for one type of legislative outcome versus another. Our role um, with federal agencies as well as with Congress is to be an implementation partner. So they identify the need, they identify NIFWIF as who they want to have implement it, and we kind of say, all right, let's go, let's let's get, to, get it done. Um, so, you know, the, the, the history of this, I think is, you know, I, I think the way you described it is probably more or less right. I, I'm, so, I mean, NIFWIF got into this coastal resilience benefit, I think, in a big way um, after Hurricane Sandy. Okay. And, you know, in that case, there was, oh, gosh. You know, I think it was probably on the order of about $50 million that came to NIFWIF as part of a broader package. And that came through the Department of the Interior. And, you know, the idea was post-Hurricane Sandy, a lot of these jurisdictions um, in, you know, in, in that area that was impacted wanted to do um, projects to restore natural features, you know, to kind of restore the coastline, leave them in better shape if, if you know, anything you know, even a fraction of the impact of Sandy comes along again. And so we learned a lot from that. We learned an awful lot about how these projects work. And we identify, you know, we did kind of a, we learned a lot about how the projects work. We learned a lot about how the grantees work and what their needs are. We've done um, comprehensive evaluations of those grants, kind of looking at like, what do you need to invest in to actually have some type of effect on reducing the risks of these, you know, of the flooding and storm events on communities. It kind of has helped us be smarter grant makers. It's also helped us think about where you want to put money on the ground. Um, so what what are the kind of, what, what would make this place over here a better option than that place over there in terms of making an investment? And so we've developed some tools that are on our website. It's the, there's this coastal resilience um, evaluation and citing tool that, you know, is just kind of a, a, an analysis of kind of different features across the landscape that can help people figure out, okay, this is probably a good place for us to start thinking about where we want to do a resilience project. And so, 
you know, I think there was a lot of momentum building behind this idea of coastal resilience and a lot of sense of, okay, we've done a lot of planning. We're really, we're really ready to start doing some stuff that's bigger. And that was what, when Congress appropriated the 30 million to NIFWF, that was kind of the direction that came with it is we want to see you guys fund projects and we want to see these projects come through at some bigger scale. And so, you know, we started working with NOAA to make that happen. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and so the sort of <laughs> the powers combined of NOAA and NIFWF can sort of focus in on how um, folks in on the National Coastal Resilience Fund. And the other piece that I wanted to, to get in, and this might be um, maybe it's not worth dwelling on the past, but is the effort uh, that Senator Whitehouse has had. And this is where I understand NIFWF doesn't can't take advocacy positions, but my organization, American Shore and Beach, does, and and we've been uh, we've worked with Senator Whitehouse to uh, move the national uh, well, I guess get the National Ocean and Coastal Security Trust Fund authorized about five years ago, which would take um, which sort of sets up a trust fund for uh, coastal resilience efforts, and so some of that would go to states. I think some of that funding could potentially go to NIFWF, um, and so one thing that we've been pushing is to make sure that if there is additional um, as wind power increases across the country, that some of the lease fees from that would go back to coastal resilience. And so that's something uh, that Senator Whitehouse from Rhode Island has put forward in what's called the Offshore Act. Uh, and so we see that as a potential play for um, for additional funding for this program. And I'm not going to ask you to comment on that because I know you guys aren't allowed to take positions on that, but it certainly seems like um, whether it's that or other opportunities, uh, it would be good to see this program, which which I think does a lot of good work, um, provide get funding other than the appropriations process, which can really vary from year to year. So no, no need to comment on that. That was my little sidebar editorial. Um, but if there is anything else you want to talk about in terms of uh, increasing funding, maybe maybe even if there are opportunities that you see to get more private funding involved, you mentioned that one of the reasons NIFWF can is is great is, is it can leverage additional funding so what has been your work around trying to get private foundations to sort of match or leverage the federal funds provided well there are kind of two things that struck me i mean first to answer your question you know we've brought on some new partners for working with this so um transre is a reinsurance company and we worked with them to provide to help fund projects that we do under the National Coastal Resilience Fund. And also um, Shell Oil has been one of our partners for, for NCRF, which I think is really great. And I mean, it's tremendous to have their support. And we're continuing to work with, uh, with the private sector to identify more of these kinds of funding partnerships. And I'm kind of hoping that for 2020, we'll be able to bring in a couple more uh, public and potentially other public, other uh federal agency partners with this program, but we're still working on that. So I'm not going to tell you what they are. Uh, and then okay. the other thing that just kind of strikes me is, no, I can't, I, you know, all that you said, the only thing I would just point out is I can tell you what I see. And what I see is that there is a lot of demand. Um, we are seeing a lot of communities that are looking at nature-based features to be more resilient. They are, they want to do these projects. They're interested. They ask really good questions. Um, so there's definitely a need. And, uh, you know, for 2020, we saw in our first round this year about five times the amount of demand as funding that we have available. So, you know, I, I think that people are sort of seeing that this has to be part of how you think about living on the coast. 
and people are ready to do the work. And, you know, so. So you're getting well over a hundred million dollars of asks and only able to fund, what do you, what do we say? 30, 33 million, something to that effect. That's right. And you also mentioned that you're actually going out and trying to work with partners to sort of solicit the best. So I guess you might even think that, you know, there could potentially be even more funding requests out there that might not meet your sort of your highest threshold. But if you had additional funding available, there might be might be even additional projects that would be worthwhile, just not, the, you know, not the, the, the absolute most critical. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, you know, part of part of starting a new funding program like this is the amount of time that you spend, you know, helping people get to know you and understand what you're trying to do and kind of build good project ideas and submit, you know, and, and kind of get them into the process. So we spend, even when we're not working on managing the funding cycle, we're spending a lot of time kind of reaching out and trying to understand what people need and what they want to do and helping them think about what kinds of projects um, they, they could be proposing to the program so that when the RFP comes out, that isn't the first time that people hear about it. Actually, then that's that sort of raises one of the questions that I wanted to ask you about, which is how do you guys as a funder and as a big funder make sure that you are reaching some of the organizations, some of the maybe local community organizations that don't quite have the advantages of major national conservation groups? So how do you make sure that you are um, hearing and listening to some of the underserved organizations? How are you making sure that, you know, I, I know one of the things you, any foundation wants to do is leverage their money, you know, make sure that you're getting, um, you're, you're funding things that have a, a match, but how do you make sure that you're helping those community organizations that might not have as many access to resources as, as a, as a nature conservancy or, um, you know, a ducks unlimited or one of those big, very, very important and good organizations, but they're just well connected. How do you, how do you stay connected to those local groups? Well, we do podcast interviews. That's a good way to get the word out. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> you know, the this is this program is really kind of an all hands on deck um, effort internally. So, you know, we, you know, the way, and these are things I never knew about NIFWF before I started working here, and I think it's really cool about us. Um, you know, we are organized into these regional teams. So we've got people who work on the ground with communities across the Northeast U.S. And then we have another team that works, you know, in the Southeast. And, you know, we've got GEBF and other folks that are working with communities in the Gulf of Mexico and on, same on the West Coast and in Alaska and Hawaii and in the islands. And, you know, NIFWF runs a lot of other funding programs. So, you know, we, we have a lot of familiarity with who's out there and who's doing this work. And, you know, typically maybe a just a couple dots you have to connect to reach the people who want to do these projects. So we work really closely with people across NIFWF who have these community relationships to try and figure out how to connect with them, how to connect with these people, how to reach them and make sure that they know that this opportunity is available to them. Because it should be. I mean, that's the idea. The other, you know, we, and we try to, you know, we have a particular concern about like the program requires a one-to-one -one match and we want, you know, we want grantees to be able to access these funds and be able to overcome hurdles like that. And so, you know, we've been trying a lot of different things and a lot of different angles and different areas to try and figure out how we can do that. So, you know, there's different types of funds that are available in different communities that could be used as match. Like you could match an NCRF project with funding from like um, 
oh gosh, the GOMISA, the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act funding actually has specific language in its authorization saying this can be used as non-federal match for federal funds. So, you know, communities can access that at a state level and bring that to the table to match NCRF funds. We also don't differentiate between a cash match and an in-kind match. People think that cash match is better and this is gonna give me two more points in the scoring criteria. It will not. We don't have a preference for one or the other. If your community is such that, you know, volunteer hours and in-kind contributions are how you meet your match requirement, fantastic. We're not gonna go pick the guy over there who can get somebody to write him a million dollar check just because he can do that. They, you know, it's one thing we look at amid all of the other criteria that we evaluate for projects. And we've also been able to work with other funders to try and coordinate our efforts. So in the 2019 cycle, um, we were able to kind of um, try and ma match up our timing with the California Ocean Protection Council. They had some direction from the legislature to work with um, particularly like lower income communities and help them do resilience projects. And so we worked with, the. I mean, you know, it wasn't a formal funding relationship, but they reached it, they kind of did some of the outreach and they said, look, we've got funding for a lot of you communities. NIFWF has this funding opportunity. If you want to apply to the National Coastal Resilience Fund, come talk to us. We have funding that could help you meet the match requirement. And so I think, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to use whatever options are available to us to help, um, <clears throat> help people access this program. And that's what we're open to do is look for all those different options. Very helpful. Um, so I, sort of in, in wrapping up, uh, hopefully people are excited and inspired about uh, this work. And if they wanted to find more information, obviously they can go to NIFWF's website and there'll be links um, from the, the show notes on this podcast. But can you sort of run us through uh, a, a timeline for the year? I know the fund or the call for 2020 proposals is closed, but if someone's like, yeah, I've got this project in, in mind, what would they need to do to sort of get it ready for 2021's call for proposals, assuming that there's still funding available in 2021? Right. So again, all depending on funding availability, <clears throat> we released the RFP in April. We, re we try and release the RFP as early as possible, just because we know it takes a while to get a proposal together. So the RFP typically comes out in April. Uh, we always do webinars associated with our RFPs. If you want to apply to this program, let me urge you to participate in one of the applicant webinars because there's a ton of good information that will make the application process about a billion times easier. Uh, that'll be a pre-proposal. We will ask people to send us a two-page summary, approximate funding need. Tell us what you what it is you're going to do kind of in real short order. Uh, we give people about a month to do that. Um, then we take those uh, about the beginning of May, uh, turn them around and invite full proposals. Our full proposals this year are due actually on Thursday of this week. Oh. So that's... Um, so you have probably, you know, from about May until about the early, late June, early July is kind of when that full proposal window is. And then once we have the full proposals, we'll review those and expect to be able to announce awards in November. So you've got some time. So if you, if you're sitting, uh, thinking about a, a good marsh restoration project that you think fits all the, all the boxes, then, uh, you know, think about it, develop it and keep an eye out in April or thereabouts for the call for proposals. Um, and Oh, let me, yeah. if I can just add on to that, yeah. if you have an idea for a project, 
call us up and talk about the idea, whether the RFP is out there or not. Um, you know, Katie Goldsmith runs this program. She's on my team. You can email me, you can email her and, you know, say, I've got a project idea. I want to run past you. And we are more than happy to talk to potential applicants about what they're planning to do and help them come up with something that will be a good fit. Well, that's fantastic and, and really nice. I know a lot of foundations are uh, not always as, as welcome to just unsolicited, hey, I've got an idea kind of phone calls or emails. So that's great that you guys are willing to take the time to chat with someone about whether their, whether their project has a chance and, and would be a sensible thing for this, this fund. Um, so we're, I guess we're just about to wrap up. But before we, before we fully finish up, I want to see if there's anything that uh, I should have asked you that I didn't, anything you'd like to talk about the, uh, about the program that you haven't had a chance to say yet. No, I think you asked all the big questions. Okay, cool. It's been fun getting to hear about the program. This is something that ASBPA has supported and um, we've advocated for funding because we've just seen a lot of good projects come out of this. Um, you know, whether you said, you know, a good cool dune project, which is really an ASBPA's, uh, you know, sweet spot in Puerto Rico to coastal restoration projects, um, you know, projects that provide those resilience benefits and also provide ecological benefits is really something that we support. So we're pleased to support this program and, and really delighted to talk to you. Um, our final question that I always ask all my guests, because it's, it's, I think, important to remember that every policy and every fund has people behind it and people need to be inspired and need to uh, get out and enjoy the resources that they work so hard to protect, um, is what is your favorite beach or coastal area? Where do you go to rejuvenate and revive and, and get ready to keep doing the good work that you're doing. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, it's funny. I've lived on most of the coasts of the U.S. at some point in my life, and they are all like every single one just has something so wonderful about it. But I grew up on the Chesapeake Bay. I grew up in Southern Maryland um, in Culver County. And, you know, there are some beaches right there along the, you know, western shore of the Chesapeake Bay where it's just so peaceful. Um, I was kayaking on Parker's Creek, uh, which is a state wildlife management area this past weekend. And that's, that's the kind of place I like to go to just kind of reset. Lovely. That's two guests in a row that I've interviewed that have called out the beaches of the Chesapeake as, as peaceful and lovely and places to rejuvenate. So if you are in the Chesapeake region, take advantage. Well, Erica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for sharing your insights and wisdom and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Take care, all.